Well, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA as we call them, was started in 1958. And it was a mere four years later than, that President John F. Kennedy uh, made these shocking announcements to the world. He said, we choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is one that we are willing to accept, one that we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. Well, this was an astonishing mandate. And I think no one was more astonished than the people who worked at NASA. Uh, that suddenly their president had commissioned them to do an impossible task in an impossible time frame. Engineer John Tribe, uh, recalling that day, was stunned by the challenge. He said, quote, we were frequently, back in those days, watching vehicles blow up. About every third vehicle didn't make it. And now we're talking about building this immense new rocket? Put three men on top of it and send it to the moon? We didn't even know how to do it. We didn't have a launch site. It was a daunting prospect to think we're going to do this in nine years. The only bright side was that President Kennedy also committed to give them all the resources they needed. NASA's budget swelled from $401 million to $5.9 billion. NASA used its budget immediately to start hiring hundreds and then thousands and then tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people to work on the project. Eventually, it would take 400,000 people working on this mission to accomplish it in the time frame. Everyone from engineers and rocket scientists, mathematicians, doctors, pilots, to artists, bricklayers, cooks, cleaners, carpenters, draftsmen, drivers, janitors, painters, secretaries, and on and on and on. And they all were committing to give their all to this mission that they had been called to by the president. Anthony Vespa, now 81 years old, recalled uh, he was one who was working on the windows of the lunar module. That was his job. And he said, everybody was required to work at least 56 hours a week. If you didn't do it, you had to get a note from the doctor or somebody's dying. It had to be a good note. That's how strict they were. The wives, the families took the brunt of it. There were times when we just didn't come home. Spent the night, sleep on a desk, have a pillow somewhere where you could find a couch. And late one night when uh, John F. Kennedy was touring the site and seeing the progress NASA was making, he, there was a janitor there and he was mopping the floor and Kennedy went up to this janitor and said, what are you doing here so late? And the man replied, Mr. President, I'm putting a man on the moon. From the most specialized job to the most menial task, everybody was needed in order to accomplish this mission. They all had the same mission, a mission that had come from their president, taking over 400,000 people's dedication. Well, the Church of Jesus Christ has been given a mission. We have been issued a mandate by our leader, the head, Jesus Christ. He has told us to spread his kingdom throughout the world, and it is going to take dedication and commitment from every single one of us to accomplish his mission. And this is what we see in 1 Peter chapter 2. 
So turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. The bright side, of course, is that Jesus too has committed to give us all the resources we need. You are those resources. Now, we've seen here in the context of Peter's letter, um, the duty that we have to desire, to crave the spiritual food that comes from God directly so that we grow in our maturity, right? If you have experienced God's goodness, you know this. To know Jesus is to love Jesus. If indeed you have tasted that he is good, then you crave more and more of him. So that's what we were looking at last week. Let's pick it up in verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Well, this morning we're going to look at verse um, 4 and verse 5. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll, we'll get to the rest of that uh, very famous and, and powerful, theologically packed passage about Jesus being the cornerstone. Today we're going to look at two privileges of being a Christian. So that you will do your part in the church. That you will be part of this great mission that has been entrusted to us. Two privileges. First is your individual part in Christ, and then we'll look at your corporate part in the church. And these two are linked causally. Because you have a, an individual part in Christ, you now also have a corporate part in the church. So what is your individual part? Look at verse 4. As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Salvation is not about being part of a church. It's not about church attendance. Salvation is not about being affiliated with a particular denomination or a particular uh, theological camp. Salvation is about a person, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In order to be saved from your sins and the eternal judgment and punishment that you deserve because of those sins, in order to get forgiveness and have that guilt expunged, you need to come to Jesus. I'm all for you coming to church, but that's not enough. Before we get to you and your part in the church, you need to realize you need a part in Christ. You need to be in Christ. And so Peter says in verse 4, as you come to him, this is something that you need to be doing so that you can be a living stone that's part of the mission. You need to come to Jesus. Now, you've heard of the, the come to Jesus talk. That's what Peter's giving us. You need to come to Jesus. Before anything else, before you can be useful, you need to come to Jesus. People these days are empty. They're a hollow People don't know what else to do. They become extremely wealthy and famous, and they feel empty. They become successful in their careers, 
they have great uh, marriages and families and uh, maybe good health and everything's going well for them and yet they still feel empty because they haven't come to Jesus. And so you need to come to him. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That's what he calls himself. That's what he claimed. And you need to come directly to him because in order to be saved of your sins and to be right with God and be plugged into the mission of what God is doing for all eternity that's going to give you fulfillment, that's going to give you a sense of purpose in your life, in order to do that, you need to be right with God. And so you need to come to Jesus for that. Otherwise, no matter what else you do in this life, you're always going to feel unfulfilled because you have not been designed to be the world's best accountant or engineer, or housewife, or mom, or teacher, you have been called to be part of an eternal mission with eternal significance. And until you're plugged into that mission, you're going to feel empty. So come to God through Christ. So many people get confused and they think that the way to come to God is through all these things that we do as Christians. They get it the the wrong way around. As you come to him, you get plugged in and get to do all these things. But people think of it as the other way around. If I do all these things, I come to him. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, Paul said to Timothy, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. That's the person and work that you need to place your faith in. The person of Jesus, the anointed one, the son of God, who's fully man and fully God, and his work, giving himself as a ransom to pay for your sins. And the way you do that is, well, there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The only way you get right with God is to come to Jesus. This is what Peter's saying, as you come to him. The reason I'm stressing this is because the number of people who call themselves Christians on the earth at the moment is numbered in the billions. And of those, many of them are being taught by their spiritual leader that the way to get right with God is by doing all sorts of Christian things. Confession, communion, prayer, tithing, church attendance, turning the other cheek, doing good things, penance for when you sin. You do all these things, and then on judgment day, God looks at that and kind of weighs it up and says, okay, you're in. The problem is that doesn't work. The order is reversed. And sometimes you can't tell the difference because you'll see some Christians doing the same thing as other Christians, and one group's doing it in order to plug into Christ, and the other group's doing it because they are plugged into Christ. That's the group that's correct, according to Scripture. You know that I grew up uh, Catholic. I grew up Roman Catholic, and so... I was seeking to please the Lord, and I was told that the way you do it is by doing these Christian things. They, in the Catholic Church, those are called sacraments. We as Protestants don't use the word sacrament so that we don't confuse people. Sacraments are things like taking communion, um, going to confession to the priest, 
uh, saying penance. That's like if you, after confession, the priest will give you, you know, say 10 Hail Marys, and then that's your penance for what you've done wrong or, or whatever it is. And this, it was explained to me that it's Christ's grace, because if you ask a Catholic, they'll say, no, I believe in grace. Absolutely, they do. But what I was told by my priest is that it's like Christ's grace is there for salvation. And the sacraments, um, it's like Christ's grace is, is the living water that saves you and cleanses you. And the sacraments are the bottled water that bring it to you. So you need to do the sacraments to get the grace. So if you're thirsty, you need to go and get a bottle of water from the fountain. That's how it was explained to me. That made sense to me, right? That's why I do these things, so that I can get grace from God. It was only years later that I realized what's wrong with that way of thinking. To keep the metaphor, bottled water isn't free. To get the grace, you have to do something. You have to pay something. It costs money and it keeps running out and you keep needing to do it. And that is a system that a lot of Christians live by. I've got to keep doing these things to keep the grace. If I stop doing these things, I lose the grace. Whereas actually, the way you get saved is you don't have the grace come to you as a bottled water. You go to, to the grace. You go to Christ himself. He's the fountain. And guess what? He's free. And he never runs out. So you come to the fountain, you drink of the fountain, and you're saved of your sins. Now, that doesn't make you want to go off and play in the mud. That is going to make you want to be with the fountain and call others to the fountain. And that's what Peter's saying. You need to come to Jesus. Once you come to Jesus... He's the living stone. He's going to turn you into living stones and then start building a spiritual house. We'll get to that. But not the other way around. It's very important. When I first heard this gospel and I shared it with people who were very close to me in the Catholic Church, what they said to me was, you're splitting hairs. Whether you do the good things to get the grace or you get the grace to do the good things, all Christians need to do the good things and we all need grace. The order is very important. If you... Withdraw money from a bank, and then you deposit that money in a bank. That's illegal. You may not withdraw money from a bank if you have not first put it in. That's called robbing a bank. If you do it the other way around, you first put money in the bank, and then you withdraw it, that's okay. Some things, the order matters. And so you can't come to Christ through these different means. You just come to him. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift. Eternal life through Jesus. So come to Jesus. Join the mission that Jesus has left, but do that by coming to him. He is the way in. Now, why are some people not part of this mission? Why, why aren't they? That Verse 4 says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. 
So Peter's using this metaphor of the stone. Jesus is the stone, and from the stone, there's going to be other stones, and then he's going to start talking. Next week, we'll look at him being the cornerstone, etc. But this concept here, Christ is the living stone rejected by men. Peter is a man steeped in the Old Testament. And so he is alluding, by using this phrase, he is alluding to a prophecy that was made by Isaiah 700 years earlier, and you'll know this prophecy probably. He was despised and rejected by men. The Messiah who would come would be a man who was despised and rejected by men. There's our phrase. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. And he was despised. We esteemed him not. That's Isaiah 53, verse 3. So Peter's saying, you come to him, a living stone, he was rejected by men. So Peter is, there's a little hyperlink from there to that Old Testament passage. That the prophecy said, this is how we know he's the Messiah. Is that he'll be somebody who's rejected by men. And Jesus was. And yet, we're told... Come to him as a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That's another hyperlink to the prophecy that was made about the cornerstone who was chosen and precious, the one that we'll get to next week. But what I want to focus on here is the, but in the sight of God. So he was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, something else. He was chosen and he was precious. I think we learned something there about our Savior that we can maybe apply to our own lives, that it didn't matter that Jesus was rejected by men if he was accepted by God. It doesn't matter what Pilate thought of him, or Judas, or the Romans, or the Jews that called for his crucifixion. Christ's worth, Christ's value was not found in what people thought of him or how they responded to him or whether they accepted him and his message or not. Christ's value was completely independent of how people treated him. His value was that God saw him as chosen and precious. How many of you have gone through something like that where you felt rejected by men? Uh, rejected by people who should have loved you. Some grew up without parents, so they were re rejected by parents or treated in a way that could only be seen as being rejected by your parents. They should have loved you, but they didn't the way they should have. Some have lost friends, should have been loyal, but weren't. Some have lost spouses because they left them for someone else, breaking their vows. Maybe you've been rejected you, by a group of friends at school. There's that sense of betrayal, that sense of hurt, that rejection. And what starts happening is that people start feeling, what's wrong with me? Where's my value? And people can become very, very depressed over being rejected by men. In junior high, that's almost a rite of passage, isn't it? 
Um, something really funny happened to me last week. I told you about the guy I was t talking to at the, the dealership, the car dealership. I took the car in and we got in a conversation. He said he was Catholic. And anyway, that was last week's sermon. Get those notes. But um, I think it was a Wednesday. The same, the same guy, bless his heart. Um, when he first saw me, I don't know why or what it was. I, I was, I guess I was dressed better than people who usually come and drop their car off or something. And he's, he looked me up and down like this and he said, I bet you were one of the popular kids in school. And I burst out laughing. I was like, I wish my high school friends could hear you say that. No, I wasn't. <laughs> I was the rejected by men category. I was the nerdy one who was bad at sport and bad at everything. And, you know, I had glasses and headgear and acne all at the same time. I was that kid. Um, but this, uh, there's this sense in which that we, we crave to be popular. We look up to the people that are popular. Popular means accepted by men. Whereas what we should be craving is to be accepted by God. That's all that matters. Say so One of the most devastating things uh, in the last uh, 20 years to be invented is the like button on Facebook. I saw an interview by the person who came up with the idea of the like button. He used to work for Facebook and he, he said he regretted it. Because it was meant to share um, uh, joy as you like one another's things. But instead, what happened is, especially younger teenagers, especially teenage girls, would become fixated with how many likes they got and didn't get compared to their friends. And it became a way of signaling how popular you were. And so their worth becomes entrenched with what people think of them and whether people like them or not. And then that leads to all sorts of things. Various, even eating disorders and, and depression and social anxiety and all the things that, that we should be free from. Because our identity is not caught up in what people think of us. Our identity is caught up in who God is and what he thinks of us. So if you can, if you can make that shift in your mind, you will be a completely different person. You will have an entirely different view of yourself and of the universe and of other people. And you will have so much more joy and you'll be so much less fragile in your joy. You won't care what people think. So come to Jesus. He was rejected by men, but he was chosen and precious in the sight of God. And that's all that counts. Remember what God said at, at his baptism, at Christ's baptism, Matthew 3, 17, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's God speaking Greek in a vernacular that we would say, boy." That's my boy. I'm so proud of him. That's what that means. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I think that there's that only parents can understand that emotion of no matter how bad you were at stuff, when your kids do well, it's like it doesn't matter that I was a complete loser at school. My kid's doing well. I'm so proud of him. That feeling, that's, that's what God has looking at Jesus. Do you think it matters what Pilate thought? Or Judas? Or the Jews calling for his crucifixion? So re remember that when God looks at you, if you've come to Christ and you're in Christ, that's what he sees. In you. That's what it means to be in Christ. I'm with him. So when God says, this is my beloved child, that includes me now. 
not because of my performance, but because I'm in Christ and because of, of how proud God is of him. Isn't that amazing? So come to Jesus. Have a part in him. That's your individual part in Christ. Now this leads to, it's very important that that comes first, this leads to the second point today, your corporate part in the church. If you are in Christ, now what? Well, verse 4 ends in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Verse 5, you, yourselves. You see the, the shift now from what Christ is doing to you and your part. You, yourself, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Peter's moving from the assumption that you've come to Christ individually, keeping his living stone metaphor going, to show that you are now an integral part of a larger structure that he calls the spiritual house. We call it a church. You're part of something now. Once you're in Christ, you're part of a group of people that are also in Christ. We call it a church. Now, just a quick recap of the way a church is used in Scripture so that you understand. There's, there's two ways the church is spoken of and manifest in Scripture. We call it the universal church and the local church, sometimes called the invisible and the visible. So let me explain that. So the universal church is all Christians from all ages, everybody who's believed in Jesus in all ages and past, and in all places in the world, that's the universal church. The reason it's called invisible is because you never see them all together because they're all over the world. Um, and also, many of them are dead already. So that's why it's called the invisible church. But that's the universal church, the body of Christ, it's called. But there's also the local church. That's what like this is. This is... Um, physical gatherings, assemblies of Christians. So all Christians are in the universal church, and then you can't see them all at once because some of them are dead and they live all over, but, so through space and time, that's the universal church. But in particular places and times, there are local gatherings. That's a local church. So the way I think of it is, you know, Wells Fargo is a bank, but you don't deal with a bank, Wells Fargo. You deal with a particular branch that you go to. In the same way, the universal church is worldwide and through the ages, but to be part of what the church is doing, you need to go to a branch of it, a, a local branch. That's, that's what this is. I also think of it as broccoli. You know, um, If you get a big stem of broccoli and you break a piece off, that little piece looks like the bigger piece. So the universal church is the big piece, and all the local churches are the little pieces that break off, and they do what the universal church does. They look the same, but they're visible, because you can, hi, I can see you. So that's how it's being used here. First uh, Corinthians chapter 12, Paul explains this a bit. He says in verse 12, just as the body is one and has many members or limbs, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. This is the universal church, all Christians. Jews or Greeks or slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. 
If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. So you see what Paul's saying? Like, you can't be a, a Christian and say, I don't need to plug into this body. I'm, I'm not a hand. I'm not part of the body. No, you are part of the body if you're a foot. You are part of the body. You're just a foot that's fallen asleep. You know what those are like, you know, when you get out of the chair and you, your foot's fallen asleep. That's you if you're a Christian and you're not part of a local church. I meet Christians all the time because um, when I try to evangelize someone, they say, oh, I'm a Christian. My first question is always, what church do you go to? And then if they say, I go to such and such church, I'm like, nuts, okay, fine. It's good for you, but I'm, I'm, I wanted to invite you to my church. But um, if they say, oh, I don't go to church, that's like saying sick them to a dog. I'm like, <laughs> okay, good. You're coming to church this week. And, and this, is what I, this is what I have to tell them. Oh, I don't go to church. I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church because I listen to music at home and I read my Bible and me and my friends get together and pray. We're in an accountability group and I have these chat groups online that we talk about theology. That's my church. No, it's not. You need to be under the accountability of elders. You need to be contributing to what a particular local church is doing in the universal church. And so Peter uses this picture of stones. You yourselves, verse 5, you yourselves like living stones. That word for stone is a smaller stone used for building. It's also the, the same stone they use for stoning people. So it's like a, one that you could pick up. We call those bricks. This is a stone. They would chisel them into shape. They would lay them on each other. They would cement them together with clay or mud or some sort of adhesive, and they would build a wall. It's a brick. Now, if you have one brick you have something that is practically useless. But if you have 10,000 bricks, you have a house. If you have a million bricks, you have a hospital, a school. So bricks together are very, very useful. A brick by itself is useless. And so he says, you are the living stones. You're being built together into this spiritual house. Charles Spurgeon said, what is a brick for? To help build a house. It's of no use for a brick to tell you that it's just as good a brick while it is kicking about on the ground as it would be in the house. It's a good-for-nothing brick. So you, rolling stone Christians, I do not believe you are answering your purpose. You are living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live. A Christian who is not plugging into a church is being disobedient on many different levels. Not only are we commanded to assemble together, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 21, for example, but we're also commanded to evangelize the nations. We're commanded to support widows and orphans. We're commanded to bear one another's burdens. I mean, are you doing these things? Are you evangelizing the nations if you're not part of a church? I'm not really preaching you now. I'm preaching the people on Facebook that are watching. Um, and I understand some of you aren't able to go to church, etc. We have people all over the world who watch these sermons, and some of them are even in persecuted countries. I'm not rebuking you. I'm just saying. You need to be plugged into a church, if at all possible. We're, something, we're part of something bigger than just our local church. You yourselves, verse 5, are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. A spiritual house. 
Notice that Peter, Peter doesn't say you're being built up into spiritual houses. So is he talking about local churches or is he talking about universal churches? Because this letter, if you remember in chapter 1, verse 1, tells us Peter's writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. So he's writing to churches all over that region, and he says, you all in all of your churches are be being built up into a spiritual house. So he's talking about the universal church. So you've got your individual part in Christ. You have your corporate part in the local church and in the universal church. Now, you cannot evangelize the nations by yourself. No individual can support widows and orphans and do all the things you're supposed to do. But as soon as you're part of a church and you're contributing financially and you're contributing with your time and your service and your effort, the money that we take together, a portion of that goes to our missionaries and they go out and they evangelize the nations. So if you put $1 in the offering, then you are now part of obeying that command to evangelize the, the world. If you're not part of a church because you meet with your friends and you listen to sermons online and you listen to a CD in the car and sing with that, that's not church because you're not evangelizing the nations. And you can just go through all of the things we're supposed to do and realize we can't do those individually. We're not meant to. But we are part of a spiritual house. So Christians are the bricks. The churches are the walls. And the universal church is the house. What's great is that there's so much unity and diversity in the body. You know this if you've traveled. Um, I've been able to preach in um, countries all over the world, Japan and Bhutan and uh, Northern Ireland and Russia and Canada and South Africa and Botswana and the States and wherever I go, I never have to change the message. Never have to preach a different gospel. Oh, these people are going through something different, so they need a different gospel. That never happens. The way you come in is through Christ. All you preach is Christ and Him crucified, and people come in. And once they're in, what do they do? They do the same thing all Christians have been doing. You worship Christ individually, and you share that with others so that they worship Christ. And we're being built up into that house. It's like Lego. You know that um, Lego bricks are created at a rate of 20 billion per year. 20 billion per year. That's 600 bricks per second. Everyone on the planet should have 62. We have more. We have more than we need. And parents all know what that's like at night when you're walking around and the kids haven't picked them up. That's like a thing. But eventually, I think they'll take over the world at, at 20 billion a year. But what's amazing about this is Lego bricks have been made since 1958, and they come in all different themes. As you know, there's the Viking theme, and the pirate theme, and the space theme, and the, the whatever. There's like now a Friends sitcom theme, and I don't know. They have all these different ones, Star Wars. But all of the Lego pieces are still compatible with the universal system. So a block that was made in 1958 for a Viking theme you can use in your Star Wars theme from the 70s one or the, the NASA space moon landing theme. They're, they're all compatible. And in the same way, you as a Christian can go and read a sermon by a brick that was made in the 1500s 
John Calvin, or the 1600s, um, uh, Thomas Watson, I recommend, or the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards, or the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon, or the 1900s, um, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, or last century, John MacArthur, John Piper, R.C. Sproul, or this century, just come here. Um, and all of us, from the 1500s all the way through, we're all preaching the same message, the same Christ, the same doctrines of grace, the same inerrancy of the word, the same truths about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And you're, you get to be part of that. Hebrews 3 verse 3 says, Jesus has been counted more worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. We are the house, he is the builder. He gets all the glory. The more our house grows, the more he gets the glory for it because he's the one growing it. Remember Matthew 16, I will build my church. I will build my church. Jesus builds the church. My job is simply this, to be the best possible brick I can be. That's your job. You don't have to worry about how to build the church. You don't have to worry about the church growing here in Mobile or worldwide or through the ages. You just do you. Be the best brick you can be. And part of being a good brick is being cemented into a house. And contribute and do the best you can. And that's how the Lord builds his church. Now look at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Priests are people that stand between man and God. So in the Old Testament, the priests were the Levites, a certain tribe of Israel that were called the priests. And to, for, if you wanted to make right with God, you had to do a sacrifice, but you couldn't do it yourself. You had to take it to a priest. And what God was teaching us is, you don't deserve to be in my presence. Something needs to die to pay for your sins because the wages of sin is death. And if it's not going to be you, it has to be something else that's innocent. That's why they had the sacrificial system. But you're so bad, you don't even get to come to me with your sacrifice. You have to go through someone else who's first done a whole lot of things to consecrate themselves and get ready so that they're considered clean. So when you read all those weird laws, I mean, what, what are we, you're in February now, so you're, you're heading into those if you're doing a, a year through Bible reading. You know, you get into Leviticus, and you're like, what is going on here? Why all the, that's what, that's what it's teaching us, that system. That the priests had to get ready so that the sinful people could bring their sacrifices so that the priests could atone on behalf of the people, right? Now, Jesus comes along, he is the Lamb of God, he fulfills all of that, there's no more sacrificial system, there's no more temple anymore, and there's no more priesthood. That's why, by the way, Protestants refuse to call the guy up front the priest. I'm not the priest, I don't stand between you and God. You're the priests, we're all the priests, that's what this verse means, that he's called us all to be a holy priesthood. Now... We are the go-betweens between the unbelieving world and God. We're the priesthood. So we need to be consecrated. We need to be holy because if you have a bad witness, you're not going to be able to witness to unbelievers. 
So the reason you keep your act clean, the reason you don't cuss at work and gossip and complain and get anxious and, and all the things that the world does, you know, and mess around and be unfaithful and uh, sexual promiscuity and gambling and alcoholism and all these things. The reason you don't do those things isn't because you're trying to get saved. Remember, you've come to Christ. You're already in. The reason you do those things is you want to be a good brick. You want to be a consecrated priest. So that when you go and tell the unbeliever, look at all this junk that you're doing. You need to repent of that. He doesn't say, you do it too. And you're like, well, I'm a Christian. I'm already saved. No, you completely missed the point. And that's the problem with most of the Christians I've met in America, frankly. Not so much when you go to the persecuted countries. But you go to a country where Christianity is part of the culture, and this is what you get. You get Christians who say, I've come to Jesus, I've been cleaned, so now I can carry on with my life and just do what I want to do. You are a good-for-nothing brick. If you call yourself a Christian and you live like the world, you are a good-for-nothing brick. What is the point? It's not about getting saved. It's about what are you saved for? Build up the house. Be the holy priesthood. A holy priesthood. Separate, consecrated, different. To bring people to God. And to do what? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We don't, you see, he's going with the metaphor still. We don't offer real sacrifices of meat and lambs and stuff, because Jesus was the Lamb of God who fulfilled that. We offer spiritual sacrifices. What's that? That's you. Your life. A life of holiness. Romans 12.1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So God wants your heart. He wants your affections. He wants your time. He wants your talents. He wants you. And the church is the arena where you give those things to him. You're the priesthood who makes the offering of your own life. There are some people who are not sitting here with us today because they are downstairs looking after the kids in the nursery. And there are some who are on security duty out there. And there's people doing all sorts of different tasks. They would rather be sitting in here, those of you who have been on nursery. People who are on nursery don't do it because they love toddlers. The only people that love toddlers are that toddler's mom and grandparents. Nobody else loves that toddler. But they are, they're there. You know why? So that you don't have the toddler running around making a noise right now. So they're doing something for you. And this is something very important that I was taught in seminary. I was taught, when you start preaching the word, and God calls the faithful to the church, and the church starts growing, one of the things that's going to happen is you're going to have lots of kids. And you're going to need nursery workers. And often it's from congregations that aren't used to doing nursery because there haven't been a lot of kids. And this is what I was taught. Don't preach a sermon on how we need more nursery workers. Just preach Christ. If you need money to pay the pastors or the missionaries or there's a building project, don't preach a sermon on giving. Just preach Christ. 
Because as people fall more and more in love with Jesus and they understand who they are in Christ, they will want to be part of the mission. And then the people with the different giftedness and the different spiritual gifts, they will start volunteering for things. I'm not good with toddlers, but I'm good with a gun. Okay, well, don't go be on nursery, be on security. Okay. <laughs> we will help channel you. So we're not going to preach the application point is everyone needs to sign up for something. I'm just going to remind you Jesus Christ loves you. And he died for you. And you are part of something so much bigger than your little life. You are part of something that spans the ages. And the way you plug into that and the way that you serve is, I don't know, however God's called you. It might be that you're wealthy and you can give more. It might be that you're single and you have more time. I know they're the ones who think they have no time. They have the most time. Um, it might be that you're good with kids. It might be that you're uh, good with building. Uh, whatever it is, whatever you can think of you're good at, do your little part. Be the best little brick you can be. And, and let Christ's glory shine. A year after President Kennedy charged NASA with landing a man on the moon in nine years, he was assassinated. And you would think then that the mission would stop. But it didn't. NASA didn't break stride. They just kept on doing. They had received their commission, and now the one who gave it to them was gone. But the mission was still important to them, and everyone did what they needed to do, and the rest, of course, is history. The moonshot was an apt way to honor JFK's memory. The same way we've all been charged with something, and they killed our leader, but he rose from the dead. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is building his church on earth. And he sent his Holy Spirit to baptize us into one body. And we are plugged in at Christ's fellowship with the universal body, with all of our brothers and sisters through the ages. So be on mission. Be a useful brick. You're a living stone in a spiritual house with one builder, Jesus Christ our Lord. So get busy living like a living stone. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to be counted uh, a brick in your spiritual house, uh, a limb in your body, that we can minister to one another, that we can reach the lost, that we can preach Christ to people that have never heard of him, that we can in our own cubicles at work, in our own um, sports teams that we're part of, in our ETA committees that we're on and all the various ways that you plug us in to the world so that we can shine the light of Christ. I pray that you would use us this very week, that we would be a holy priesthood, consecrated in our lives, that we would live lives different that other people long for. And even this very week, as people are streaming towards parades that celebrate debauchery in our city, that there are also people spreading uh, to churches, that people are coming for the light. I pray that we would be that light in a dark world. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.